Hello once again from the Cato Institute in downtown Washington, D.C. My name is Patrick Eddington, Senior Fellow here at the Institute. Welcome to our final panel uh, of Cato Surveillance Week 2023. This one is on biometrics and privacy uh, versus public safety or privacy and public safety, I suppose, depending upon how you want to look at it. Uh, we've got a great panel uh, with us today to discuss these issues. What I want to do first, though, is get some housekeeping out of the way here so that we can ensure that if you have questions, you're in a position to actually submit them. We are taking questions today via our webpage, Facebook and YouTube, and you can also submit them on Twitter using the hashtag Century of Surveillance. Um, I wanna quickly introduce uh, our panel here. We have with us Claire Garvey, uh, the Fourth Amendment Center Training and Resource Council at the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Nate Wessler, uh, the Deputy Director of the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. And finally, uh, Peter Pietra of uh, TSA. He is their privacy officer, and he's been kind enough to carve out time from his schedule today to be with us. And we very much appreciate all of you being here and all of you watching at home. Um, this has you know, kind of become a brave new world uh, with respect to technology and how we actually use it. Um, it, of course, has become an issue with devices like this. This is my, uh, my iPhone 5 with its Touch ID capability. Uh, and, of course, also with uh, later iPhone models, uh, you know, the Face ID capability. And all of these, you know, kinds of issues raise questions as to, you know, how secure is the technology. It's clearly becoming very ubiquitous. Um, it can be incredibly convenient uh, if you're a consumer. But... It can also be incredibly convenient for law enforcement. Uh, and I think that's one of the concerns that we have with respect to biometric technology generally, but also uh, with respect to facial recognition technology or FRT, as I'll say for short, which we're going to get into here uh, uh, right now, as a matter of fact. And I want to just kind of open this up, certainly to Claire and Nate, but also uh, to Peter. You know, when I think about this technology, I'm, and, and this is just me as a former intelligence officer, <laughs> and a guy who does privacy and civil liberties as his day job, I'm, I'm concerned about the pitfalls uh, with respect to the use of new technology. And you know, what do you see as the pitfalls with respect to biometrics? I'll just open that up to the panel generally. Go, go ahead, Claire. Thanks, Nate. <laughs> um, thanks, Patrick, very happy to be here. I think I would probably classify in very, very broad terms, potential pitfalls with biometric technology and, and face recognition specifically, which is my area of focus into two buckets. One is sort of entrenching old issues and the other is the introduction of new issues. On the first, um, I think we really have to look at how this technology, face recognition specifically, operates within the criminal legal system and the extent to which it extends, exacerbates, entrenches, existing inequities within the system. I think it was really beautifully put when I testified before Congress, one of my co-panelists um, talked about the aura of mathematical certainty that's introduced by using an algorithm in the, the criminal legal field and in, in other fields. And we have to be cautious that we're not actually hiding existing inequities or new inequities within this aura of mathematical certainty, just because it's an algorithm doesn't mean it's perfect, doesn't mean it doesn't have uh, disparate impacts on various communities, et cetera. Also within this, we have to look at how it works in practice. Face recognition is a um, being used as a forensic scientific discipline, but what's missing is scientific validity for how it's used in practice. Sure, we actually have a pretty good sense as to how the algorithms work in a lab setting in isolation, and maybe in some real-world operational conditions, we actually don't yet know how its reliability as it's used in the vast majority of criminal legal contexts as an investigative method. That is a huge hurdle that it still needs to overcome, despite the fact that face recognition has been used for 20-odd years in the criminal legal system. And then we can also talk about the new issues that it introduces. Sorry, Patrick, I see you're gonna jump in. Really quickly, I wanted to, to kind of dig in a little bit on this issue of um, 
a lack of certainty, if you will. It, it sounds like what you're describing here is essentially a lack of auditing, a lack of kind of back-end checks uh, to see just exactly whether or not the technology in question is performing as advertised. Am, am I reading you correctly on that? That's part of it. But even more than that, it's not just about how the technology operates. It's how the humans who use the technology, how that process, that socio-technical system that uses the technology along with other human decision-making components, how does that series of steps operate? How accurate is that series of steps? Super small example of this, a lot of systems allow the analyst running a face recognition search to edit the photo before it's submitted to the face recognition algorithm. That's going to introduce uncertainty into the system that we don't fully understand, but we can expect that it's there. Photoshopping evidence is novel. Um, it usually doesn't belong within a forensic scientific discipline, um, photo editing, and yet we see it in face recognition and we don't understand it's to a full extent um, how that impacts the end result, the reliability of that end result. And what is, what is the purpose of this editing? Is, is this basically to try to bring out additional detail in the person's face? Um, is it to eliminate, you know, some kind of optical anomalies or whatever, uh, you know, in, in the image in question? How, how is this actually being utilized, if you can give a, like a, a specific use case? It's all of the above. Um, it's in recognition that a lot of investigative photos are not perfect quality. Um, someone who's, who's seeking to be identified is not necessarily looking at the camera, their eyes might be closed. So um, using uh, software, using Photoshop to cut and paste somebody else's eyes into a subject photograph so that they appear to be open is an example we saw in a, in a specific case. Nate, um, at the ACLU, I know you all have been, uh, you know, dealing with this uh, an awful lot. Have you seen some of the same kinds of phenomena that Claire's been describing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we often talk about face recognition technology in particular as a technology that's both dangerous when it doesn't work and dangerous when it does work. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, and, and, and I want to talk about other biometrics too. You know, I think face recognition is the most troubling and the most prone to abuse, but um, there's a lot to be concerned about with other technologies too. But, you know, as Claire was describing, facial recognition algorithms are, you know, they're computer programs. They're trained on a bunch of data to operate in certain conditions pretty well, but in other conditions, they may not operate that well. Uh, and uh, it's technology that makes probabilistic guesses as to what faces are the closest match to each other. It's not designed to, and it cannot, uh, in most circumstances, provide like a definitive answer that this is the same face as in that other photo. Uh, it's, it's usually, when used in investigative context, spitting out a bunch of potential matches, and then a human analyst has to look at those and decide which one looks like the closest match. Uh, and, you know, in research conditions, as Claire was saying, some of those algorithms perform really well. Uh, but we also know that the algorithms out there have disparate false match rates by skin tone and race of the person uh, against whom a match is trying to be run. Uh, and we know that in actual real world conditions, many of these algorithms, much of the time, don't perform that well. And that's because there are so many variables that may affect actual real world photos that are fed into it by police or other government actors, right? Police are often, for example, getting uh, a snippet from a surveillance camera. Uh, that might be, you know, a CCTV camera in a store where there is a shoplifting incident or some other uh, suspected crime. Uh, you know, those cameras are usually up near the ceiling, so it's going to be at an angle. Uh, if someone's wearing a hat, there's going to be a shadow on their face. Lighting is often not optimal anyway. Uh, if the camera feed uh, isn't super high quality, then you're going to have a pixelation problem, which means there's just less data for the algorithm to process. Uh, there may be other things blocking someone's face. Their face may be at an angle. Every one of those factors is going to reduce the amount of reliable data for the, the program, the algorithm to process and introduce a greater chance of a false match. Uh, and we've seen the consequences of those false matches in the real world. Uh, I'm on a legal team that represents a man in the Detroit area. His name is Robert Williams, who a few years ago was wrongfully arrested uh, on his front lawn in front of his two very young daughters and his wife for a shoplifting crime that he had absolutely nothing to do with. 
uh, but police uh, had no evidence except for a still from a surveillance camera feed in the store. They sent it off to the state police who ran it through a face recognition system. Uh, the state police sent back a purported match to Mr. Williams driver's license photo. Uh, in fact, had the police really investigated, they would have found that he was miles and miles outside of Detroit at the time driving home from work. Uh, but instead they proceeded as if that was their suspect, uh, did one other very deficient piece of investigation, then got an arrest warrant for him, uh, arrested him. He was held for 30 hours in a dirty jail cell, interrogated. Uh, it took some time before he could find a lawyer and, and finally get the charges dropped. Um, He's just one of the cases we know of around the country of people, all of which uh, are black men who have been wrongfully arrested based on police reliance on incorrect face recognition matches. Uh, there's another case in Michigan, there's a case in Maryland, one in New Jersey, one in Louisiana. Uh, and those are just the ones we, we know of, uh, but uh, there's also tremendous secrecy surrounding these systems that makes it hard to find uh, these cases. Um, but you know, when I was opening, I said, this is technology that's both dangerous when it doesn't work, these false matches, but also it can be dangerous when it does. Uh, and that's because of the, the potential for it to feed a pervasive surveillance apparatus by the government. Uh, in most American cities, there are many, many surveillance cameras around, uh, some of them operated by the city or the state, some of them operated by private businesses or private landowners. Uh, and those are starting to be stitched together uh, into kind of centralized uh, video repositories. Uh, the technology exists to apply face recognition technology to those unified video systems, uh, which would give the government the ability to identify and track anyone or really everyone they wanted to, uh, which uh, we certainly think is you know a power incompatible with a democratic society. Your colleagues who are TSOs uh, who wind up greeting us air travelers, um, are, are put in a position where they're basically sitting at a kiosk, you present your ID, and, and I have some questions about that uh, that we'll get to a little bit later. But how, how do your TSOs and the rest of your personnel kind of try to deal with some of these issues that Claire and Nate have, have raised so far? Uh, so for just to give you like a hypothetical, well, not really a hypothetical. Pre-pandemic, I had a pretty decent goatee. I don't now because I still wear a mask from time to time, but my previous driver's license still had my my face with my goatee on it. So if I show up, you know, at one of your checkpoints uh, and uh, I don't have a goatee anymore uh, and maybe some other things have changed, like, oh, let's say pre-pandemic or post-pandemic weight, uh, and I'm, I'm looking maybe a little bit different than I did uh, the last time I flew, how do they sort that out? How do they, how do they kind of work through that uh, from a technological standpoint and an analytical standpoint? Well, uh, thanks, Pat. So, um, uh, you know, your, your question is one that is one of the reasons why we are looking at, uh, you know, using facial recognition technology as opposed to having, uh, you know, a human uh, doing the match of the driver's license uh, or whatever ID they presented against, uh, against your face. And um, it's pretty clear to us that the performance of the technology is better than um, uh, the human. Um, uh, and the technologies uh, perform, um, I, I, as I understand it, just as well, you know, if in the circumstance you provide where, you know, you have a goatee, don't have a goatee, uh, you're wearing your glasses, you're not wearing your glasses, um, uh, you know, you put on some pounds uh, or taken off some weight. Um, that really doesn't seem to affect that as much. But that's one of the reasons why, you know, TSA has been looking at uh doing this uh you know it's this all goes back to um uh you know 9 11 uh and uh uh you know two two of the 19 hijackers were on a watch list and so congress uh as in its reaction to 9 11 said you know you need to do identity checks of people against watch lists um and so um you know, we have required people to uh, provide ID. If you know, and we recognize there are circumstances where people don't have ID or they may have lost it. Um, so there are there, there are ways that they can um, enter the checkpoint uh, if we do a, if we're able to establish their identity. Um, but uh, that's been one of the missions now over time. Uh, as the number of passengers has increased, uh, 
um, and our workforce has remained static or in, in, at some points has even dropped, um, you know, that can lead to longer lines. And so there's been a desire to see, well, what can we do that would be maybe a little bit faster um, uh, in addition to being more accurate? And so that's one of the reasons why we've been working on trying to incorporate biometrics into the screening checkpoints uh, you know, by TSA. We looked, we, we did actually try with fingerprints. Uh, we did a little test in uh, Denver and in, uh, um, but there were some issues with that, you know, the performance there and uh, CBP was already doing some work with uh, facial recognition for their missions. Um, and so, you know, as part of a, a one DHS kind of effort, we start to do more work with uh, faces and that's where we're, we are now. And I don't, I don't know if you want me to go into that, you know, what we're doing now or want to, is that? Well, well, we, we, I think we will definitely want to get into the, you know, the here and now at some point, but what I want to go back to, and we're getting some questions on this. And one of them comes from uh, Edward Hasbrook. Uh, who says the TSA has said that its use of facial recognition is intended to identify travelers. But TSA has said in litigation that travelers are not required to show ID credentials. Does the TSA now claim authority to compel travelers to identify themselves? Would such a requirement be constitutional? Uh, I'll, I'll start with Peter. You know, is there a specific statutory basis for TSA to say to me, um, you know, you need, you need to present this ID to us because, and the reason that I've asked this is my relationship isn't with TSA. My relationship is with Southwest Airlines in this case. Um, you know, I've purchased the airfare. Um, it is a fee for service kind of operation. So why, why does TSA, if there are no wants and warrants on me, for example, why would TSA need to know who I am? I mean, I'm a total well, so I'm total, but let me be clear. I'm a total believer in the screening of passengers and baggage. I believe that's an absolute necessity. I think that's been demonstrated over the course of the last 50 years. You all put out almost weekly, weekly emails about the number of people trying to bring firearms, including loaded firearms into the cabin. So I have no issue with that at all, but I'm, I'm trying to understand if there is in fact a statutory basis for TSA to essentially say, if you don't show us an ID, you're not getting on that airplane. Well, so I, I'm, I'm actually not aware of any, uh, you know, pending litigation that involves that issue. I know that uh, there was a case uh, way back, uh, I want to say 2005, 2006 timeframe. So early, early on where um, um, uh, Gilmore, uh, John Gilmore, uh, uh, Gilmore versus Gonzalez, I think was a case, uh, did challenge ID requirements and the uh, Ninth Circuit upheld them um, under a security directive that TSA had, um, you know, in place. Um, there is a statutory requirement that uh, uh, we uh, check uh, passengers against the watch list, and there's actually statutory language that we uh, use biometrics to prevent um, or that we explored use, the use of biometrics to prevent, uh, uh, you know, terrorists from getting on planes. That's, that's statutory. We do have regs that uh, have been promulgated that require passengers to provide name, date of birth, and gender um, to fly. Um, I'm going to guess that uh, to verify that name and date of birth and gender is going to, you know, lead you to producing some identity document that would uh, at the checkpoint in order to uh, enter the sterile area. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably not the right guy to ask uh, for the specific statutory citations, but, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not aware of any pending litigation or any even recent litigation involving you know, the question that, uh, that Ed raised, uh, more that you've raised. Yeah. We, you know, well, well before this event, I, I was scouring essentially, um, statutes trying to find any kind of specific directive, uh, in, in statutory so, so, language. So, so at, that's a definitely, you know, the, the, the fundamental, you know, 49 USC, uh, one fourteen is, uh, the main statutory, uh, uh, 
document providing legal authorities for TSA. Uh, that one uh, absolutely has language that uh, requires us to explore the use of biometrics to prevent uh, passengers from getting on, or you know terrorists from getting on board a plane. As far as an identity, identity document at a checkpoint, I don't know that the statute specifically says that, but I know that our you know, promulgated regulations that I think would lead, you know, lead to that requirement. Yeah, I, I think that. Um, and, and, you know, and again, the one the one time a case that I'm, I'm aware of being brought, um, you know, resulted in upholding TSA's ability to require ID. So I think if it's if it's uh, if it's a question, I'm surprised it hasn't been litigated in the interim, um, you know, given the certainly the attention that, that uh, Ed has brought to it and others. Yeah, it, it is, I think, a question that still needs to be um, examined, I think, in a, in a lot more detail because, you know, my reading essentially of, of the statute is essentially that um, it, it's applicable certainly to, uh, you know, airline personnel. It's applicable to folks who might be, you know, fueling the aircraft, you know, bringing supplies on board the aircraft, food and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But I, to me at least, um, it, it's still an open question as to whether or not there's a a really strong statutory basis there. And you probably understand where I'm coming from on this in that, again, in the absence of actual wants or warrants on specific individuals, um, I find it very difficult to believe that at the end of the day, this is truly a, you know, a, a, a constitutional act on the part of a government sure. agency re requiring, you know, requiring you to present credentials to get on, on a private, a commercial, you know, commercial airliner. Again, in the, in the absence of, you know, wants or warrants, um, if we're talking yeah, so, about. So to be clear, you know, we don't actually run against criminal databases. So we're not looking for people with open wants and warrants. I would, I would hope that that's not something that you'd be advocating for. I, I think that that would be a pretty bad result. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, every now and then it crops up that, you know, somebody would like us to do that and, and, and they're surprised that we don't, but, um, you know, when we did the, promulgate the, the final rule for secure flight, uh, you know, we did solicit opinions from the, you know, com comments from the public and, you know, among the comments um, from, uh, you know, advocacy groups and from, in, in, and from the Hill, frankly, um, you know, there were concerns that secure flight would be turned into a law enforcement dragnet. Um, and so we specifically disclaimed using it for, you know, routine kind of criminal uh, enforcement. Uh, and, and I, you know, I would think that that would be a real concern to get to points that Claire uh, was making earlier, that that would be one of the real concerns with the It appears that Peter may be having a little bit of a technical issue on his end. So, um, but I, I appreciate, uh, you know, what, what he was bringing there. Uh, looks like we, we do have him back. Um, I do want to come back, you know, to kind of examine, you know, the existing TSA programs and some of the plans you all might have. I want to come back to that, but I want to make sure that uh, we get kind of the broader perspective here too. Um, uh, Claire, Nate, uh, and even Peter, is FRT more problematic than most other uh, biometric technologies? I, I certainly have the sense that just on the basis of what you all have said so far, it absolutely presents a number of additional potential threats uh, to privacy and civil liberties. Um, if you can expand on those, if you can talk about, you know, some of the real world use cases that you all have encountered, um, litigation, things of that nature, I think our audience would be very interested in hearing that. One of the things that face recognition poses as unique is its uh, ability to be used as a surveillance tool. Um, unlike any other pre-existing biometric technology, um, faces can be captured remotely and in secret. So this raises unique questions about this capability vis-a-vis -vis the First Amendment, our right to free speech, association, public demonstration, etc. Um, that other biometrics, at least as they stand now, don't pose and have historically not posed. The other uh, unique aspect about face recognition um, is quite practically that it operates on photos and we have legacy photo data sets of almost all of us. Uh, photo data sets are a way of identification and as a practical matter, most of us are in numerous of these and they've been almost instantaneously turned into biometric data sets. 
This is unique to FACES. Um, we are not all, as a matter of course, enrolled in fingerprint databases at birth or when we get a driver's license, for example. Um, certainly with new biometric modalities like GATE, IRIS, let's say EarPrint, there aren't existing databases. So as a practical matter, new and other modalities outside of FACES are going to be much more slowly rolled out. What we've seen with face recognition, the first system in the law enforcement side of things started being used in 2001, so over 20 years ago. And that really happened without any notice to the public, any sort of negotiation or discussion about enrollment because the database already existed. So we have this odd aspect when it comes to face recognition where its adoption has predated by almost 20 years any sort of public discussion um, about regulation, control, et cetera. Anything to add on that particular point? Uh, I have very little to add to, to what Claire said. I mean, I think the, um, you know, there, there are some types of biometrics that are just very difficult to capture at a distance remotely, right? Fingerprints, for example, or iris scans, uh, iris prints, um, both of those can be, you know, that there's a documentation that, that's come out in public about the FBI investing in research into being able to read fingerprints off of higher quality photos on people's social media uh, accounts. Uh, so it can be done, but it's not being done at scale and it really probably couldn't be. Um, you know, iris scans, again, there's there's federal government research uh, and, and private uh, scholars research about being able to, um, with higher enough quality images to be able to read enough details off people's irises at some number of yards away. Uh, but again, it's not amenable to really being done at scale, uh, off a of video, um, or even someone just live in front of you. Uh, but, but face recognition can be, um, and, uh, because of that, and for all the reasons Claire said, it's, it's being adopted much more widely than other uh, types of biometrics and at scale uh, and feeding into um, giant matching databases, giant repositories of face prints. Uh, you know, there, there are systems, uh, many, many companies that are selling face recognition algorithms to government and private industry buyers for them to bring their own matching databases, right? So that might be uh, state driver's license photos, arrest photos, federal passport photos. Um, and then there's a, another company, Clearview AI, which has been scraping the internet for billions of photos. The last time I heard they had a database of 30 billion photos of people from social media, from, uh, you know, employer websites, from local newspapers, anywhere else in the internet where there's a photo that might be attached to a, a name uh, and building a giant database of face prints extracted from those photos uh, and selling that to police departments and other law enforcement around the country, uh, which presents a truly unprecedented ability or possibility for uh, the government to instantaneously attempt to identify anyone in any situation uh, and then uh, take some action uh, without usually any kind of court oversight uh, and often in tremendous secrecy. Uh, and that's, that's really concerning. We have an interesting parallel here in that um, the rise of data brokers uh, dealing with a lot of electronic related information, whether it's GPS related data or other data that they wind up, you know, accumulating and selling that has become obviously a major point of contention with respect to a potential fourth amendment, uh, and run, which is why, uh, Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, uh, has had his fourth amendment is not for sale act out there for quite some time. We'll have to see whether or not, uh, he can actually attach that to some must must pass legislation this year. Uh, to try to, you know, close that particular loophole. But what you're describing here, it sounds to me as very much a very, uh, you know, a similar kind of circumstance in that the data broker industry got going because the technology was there and government has been glacially slow to try to catch up to that. What is the state of the law right now as, as it pertains to biometrics at the federal, state, and local levels? Um, I, I've, you know, read about, you know, some of these, um, you know, local ordinances essentially banning the use of it, but um, that's really a, a very patchwork kind of, you know, approach to the situation that I don't think is really viable. So what, what does it look like um, at, uh, you know, at, at this point in time in terms of the federal, state, and local landscape? Yeah, there's, in most parts of the country, very little or no law on 
on biometric identification and specifically about face recognition technology. Um, you know, there's really nothing from Congress uh, which creates just a, this wide open field for uh, law enforcement agencies to make up the rules as they go. Um, that said, there are roughly a couple dozen jurisdictions, uh, cities, counties, uh, one state, state of Vermont, that have uh, banned or placed moratoriums on law enforcement or government use of facial recognition technology, recognizing uh, that there are a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of dangers from police use of this, this technology. Uh, and those jurisdictions, you know, they range from Portland, Maine, to Boston and Springfield, Massachusetts, to Minneapolis, to Jackson, Mississippi, to uh, King County, Washington, which contains Seattle and uh, a number of places in the Bay Area and uh, a bunch of other, other jurisdictions elsewhere. Um, there are a few other states that have enacted not bans, but strict regulations, uh, like Maine is an example, uh, that bars uh, law enforcement from using their own or purchasing their own face recognition systems. They have to go through a single system administered by the state police and the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles and, and Secretary of State's office uh, with some strict controls on the kinds of cases that face recognition can be used in, a probable cause requirement, uh, which certainly tamps down on possibilities for abuse, although doesn't eliminate them. Uh, you know, in Congress, there, um, there's been a moratorium bill that's been introduced in the last few Congresses by Senator Markey. Uh, you know, it has to has yet to really move in in this Congress, but uh, we think that's the the right approach, uh, so that uh, there can then be a you know a robust democratic debate about all the concerns with this technology, its accuracy rates, its potential for surveillance, uh, and other problems, uh, and then we can figure out what the right set of rules might be. Peter, I'm going to assume that um, uh, folks at, at your department would probably really not be thrilled with a congressional moratorium bill. Uh, on uh, on the use of uh, FRT, um, can you kind of give us a sense of of where you all are at right now with the technology? You know, what do you have that's currently deployed? What do you have in the pipeline? Um, how is it being deployed? Does it apply only to international travelers coming to the United States, uh, or is this going to be something you try to roll out? You know, domestically, um, just kind of in in a blanket fashion. So um, I, I can't really comment on what CVP is doing. I mean, they really have the, you know, the, the, the bulk of the international, you know, they have a, they have a, they have a mandate, an entry exit um, mandate. Um, but for, for us, um, we are still uh, working on developing it, still testing it. Um, we have uh, fundamentally two different efforts underway. One is a, is a kind of, it's a one-to-one -one, uh, matching where, um, you know, you, you would walk up to the cat machine, put in your driver's license. It will match against the photo, match your face against the photo that is on the driver's license um, or identity document, if it's a passport or something else. Um, and, uh, and validate that, that, that it is in fact an authentic uh, document. Um, and then that's it. Um, so it really, it really is a replacement for uh, the, the officer that would normally perform that function of looking at you and looking at your driver's license and say, yeah, that's the same, that's the same person. Um, the, it's, it, the data is not stored, the transaction, um, you know, the photograph's not stored. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the end of it. Uh, and we have that right now, there are about 25 airports that have, um, some form of one-to-one -one matching going on. And for, you know, for the vast majority of the domestic travelers, um, that really is probably what is going to be needed because there is no centralized database for us to match against. Um, and so, um, you know, people, most Americans don't have a passport, so they don't have a photograph that's enrolled someplace. Um, the DMVs, you know, are not, they don't have a centralized, um, database. So we don't, we don't run against the, the DMVs. Um, and from a privacy perspective, really, that's the, that's the superior, um, you know, way to handle this. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's. It's a it's a one to one against an ID that you already have, and um, uh, and uh, and then that's the end of it. Um, the other effort that we're doing is a one to n uh, matching, um, 
and uh, is part of an effort to work with CVP and uh, with their TVS uh, data, database um, to match against a photograph that may be uh, in, a, in a database uh, someplace. So uh, right now that is at two airports um, and it requires a fair amount of work for the individual that wants to participate in it. Um, they have to enroll um, they have to have a passport photo uh, that that CVP can pull from uh, the, the State Department enrollment uh, to be matched against. Um, and you have to consent uh, in order to participate. You also have to have a, an app on your phone uh, to do this. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that, but Again, that's uh, one that is designed so that uh, you wouldn't even have to stick your driver's license. You wouldn't even have to have it with you. You would just be able to walk up, you know, with the reservation, um, uh, scan your boarding pass, and then uh, it would take a look at your face and do uh, do the matching there. I, you know, that is to me at least um you know on a on a privacy side of things that is the one that is more problematic because of the potential that you have to you know retain those uh photographs um match them up against whatever databases you know uh, may be available um but this is something that uh some passengers have you know have said they wanted and so we are uh trying to work with um the airlines and with CVP and with, uh, you know, these pre-check passengers to, to do this. There is a subset within the one-to-one -one matching. There is also, you know, mobile driver's licenses that are a thing uh, now. And, you know, there's five states, I think, that have mobile driver's license. Um, and, uh, but to me, that's just another form of one-to-one. -one. And so the, the analysis is, no, is really no different. Uh, you're still, you know, pulling your driver's license up and it's doing a one-to-one -one match. And then that's the end of the the uh, transaction. Uh, thanks for that explanation of, uh, of the two programs that uh, you've either got active or are. Let me uh, say one more thing. Already. So, so um, in terms of where things are, you know, I, I said we're, it's at about, it's, 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 I think we're at 19 or it's going to be 25 airports uh, for the, the CAT2 devices. They're the ones that can do the face, you know, the read the face, they have the camera. Um, just in terms of scale, there are about 2,000 of the CAT-1 devices in uh, airport checkpoints right now, and that is does not have that capability. So in terms of your thinking, you know, in the, the vast majority of the airports and checkpoints do not have the capability. And so we're still, we're still trying to work, you know, work through the issues. You know, we found um, that, you know, some driver's licenses don't read very well. Um, sometimes, you know, they're just in bad shape. Um, sometimes the, the barcode on there is not, uh, you know, printed very well. Um, so, you know, these are the, the kind of the growing pains that uh, we're going through in terms of trying to develop it before we really are able to roll it out and, you know, more broadly. Um, uh, we've got uh, a question in from uh, an anonymous uh, viewer uh, asking, are airports required to share that passengers can opt out of the facial recognition screening? And if so, where should passengers expect to see those notices so they're aware that they can opt out of that screening? So uh, there is, uh, so yeah, right. We do have an opt out um, for the, yeah. so first of all, again, you know, the one, the one N, you got to do a lot of work to actually get into it. So that one very clearly, um, you know, consent does not seem to be any sort of an issue there. The one-to-one -one, uh, uh, efforts are the ones where, you know, if you come up to the checkpoint and they have the camera there, um, there is signage that is supposed to be there. Um, you know, we've had a couple of complaints uh, that, you know, the signs uh, were not, not visible or weren't there. Um, you know, when I've gotten those complaints, I have had the customer service reps at the airports go out and take a photograph uh, of the sign so that, you know, they can send, send it to me and I could send it on to the person that, you know, may have walked past it, you know, looking at their phone and just didn't realize it was there because there are lots of signs um, at airports. Um, I've also had complaints um, 
you know, I had a complaint from a passenger saying that we were doing this and it turned out, you know, we didn't even have the technology at that airport. He was talking about a CVP effort at the, at the gate and not, not anything that we were doing. So, um, uh, you know, but, but yes, to your fundamental question, you know, there is a signage. Um, we have looked at and are starting to look at whether we can build um, that sign into the cat screen so that, you know, it's not a matter of you missing a sign while you're in line, but you, when you get to the actual cat device, the screen will, will tell you that, you know, you have this ability to opt out um, if you'd like. Um, based on what you've heard from Peter today, what concerns, if any, do you have with the kinds of systems that he's described? I mean, I, I, I certainly think that, you know, in the, the scheme of different uses of face recognition technology, you know, a one-to-one -one match in good lighting conditions, a controlled situation, uh, you know, is vulnerable to, to less of the concerns that I've been expressing. Um, but there are, you know, still real concerns about, uh, you know, failures to make a match. Uh, and then what happens then, right? Does that mean that, uh, you know, people are going to be funneled into a whole bunch more hassle or to some kind of secondary screening uh, through no fault of their own, but because the, the system just failed to, to match? Is that going to happen at a higher rate for darker skinned travelers, for travelers of color? Uh, certainly an outcome we want to avoid. Uh, so, uh, you know, those are questions about how it actually works in practice. Um, and then I think, you know, there are just bigger kind of society-wide questions we have to answer about, uh, you know, how we want to be vigilant against an automated checkpoint society. Uh, you know, very often technologies that originate in limited government law enforcement uses quickly expand to other parts of society, to other uses by law enforcement and government agencies and the private sector. Uh, and I think we need to be really vigilant that a technology that is perfected for a particular use at airport, airport checkpoints uh, doesn't then get readopted and spread to, you know, for entry to government buildings where you may have some business to, uh, to checkpoints on the street. Uh, and, you know, that of course is not Peter's job uh, directly, but it's all of our job to, to worry about the adoption and then spread of these technologies. Claire? And on that point, I know, I know Peter mentioned the distinction between one-to-one -one and one-to-n. Um, for folks at home who might not fully understand, one-to-one -one is face, what's called face verification. Look, I have a prop. Is, do these two people match? That's one-to-one. One-to-n um, would be, who is this person? Can we derive an identity from a database? Those two different systems carry different risks. Um, as Nate was saying, and the one-to-n, I think as we're all, we're all suggesting does carry enhanced risks. A misidentification can happen in that scenario. You can be, if in a one-to-end system, who is this person? You can be misidentified to somebody on a watch list. And then the question becomes, has the agency using the system thought through what the avenues of redress are, um, how to correct for those types of mistakes? So I think one of the things I feel is sometimes missing from conversations around face recognition, around new technologies a lot, is a nuance and talking about how different systems perform differently and carry different risks. Um, and I think we should just be very careful and, and clear about what types of systems we're talking about, not this panel specifically, but um, everybody who operates in this space and, and legislators who are looking at these systems to really think through are we correctly looking at, are we looking at regulating a technology or are we regulating risks that certain applications of a given technology pose? And can we actually be a little more nuanced and a little more circumspect around those risks? Yeah, so- and Do you think, no, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I was just gonna say, um, you know, so you're absolutely right uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's how it's, it's, is what is the use of the technology that is the real issue, right? If, if there is, if it is, uh, we are just going to check to see that you are actually the person that is on your ID or that has made the, has made this reservation, uh, you know, the same name. 
um, and then we're and we're not keeping it and we're not matching against any other databases, then um, then you know I think we've gone a long way towards addressing the fundamental privacy problems. It's, it's where you get the mission creep, Bill. You know, hey, let's start let's start keeping the photos and let's let's uh, start running against other databases. Um, you know, let's start looking for criminals instead of looking for you know people who are against you know on watch lists. That's where your that's where your issues you know, uh, really start to ramp up. And, um, you know, once you build the capability, you have to think about, you know, what are the protections that you put in place? So for for our, our you know, one-to-one -one, uh, matching that we do, you know, if the, the technology says, you know, no, this is, there's no match here. Well, there's, there's, there are two reasons that, uh, well, there's two different ways that the technology could be wrong, right? One could be, um, it says it's, it's not a match, uh, and you are. And in that case, uh, you know what happened is that the person will uh, uh, flag the officer that should be, you know, in right there, and say, "Hey, this is saying there's no match here." And, and they'll take a look at the, the ID and they'll look at the person, and they'll be the human, kind of, you know, what they talk about, human in the loop, you know, making the decision on, yeah, this this you are the right person, or or you're, or no, you really don't look like the right person. The other, you know, error that you can have is um, that the technology says, "Yeah, there is a match," um, and and it's not, right? Um, you know, so you have a, a kind of a false positive that benefits the individual, um, but doesn't, you know, that but that hurts the theoretically hurts the security. Um, you know, your driver's license, the the, the 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 ID that you are presenting is a close enough match that you, you know, are able to fool the device and it and you can get through. It's, it's probably a lesser problem um, than the other, uh, but uh, that, you know, it's, it's certainly a possibility. We got an interesting- Can I just jump in with just a, an observation about the, the human in the loop solution? Um, I mean, you're, you're right that that's, you know, that's how the, the TSA checkpoints are structured. But I think you know, one lesson from some of the law enforcement uh, cases where people have been wrongly identified and then action taken against them is that there was a human in the loop and they they didn't fix the problem. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's partly a function of kind of innate human cognitive bias toward trusting machine results, right? Trusting results from algorithms on computers uh, and then uh, not being able to truly conduct an independent review uh, once the system has said, uh, you know, this is not a match or it's a likely match. Uh, and, um, I just don't know how you guard against that when, when you have a, a computer say, uh, based on what's supposed to be a sophisticated algorithm, uh, nope, this person is not the same as the person on, on the ID, uh, you know, possible fraudulent attempt to, to pass this checkpoint. And then, you know, a TSA employee is supposed to look at it and, and double check that, um, you know, I, I has, has your agency done any kind of sort of independent or rigorous audit testing about that problem and, and how to avoid it. So that's all part of the, you know, the studying that we're doing now. Um, so we are uh, collecting data for S&T, which is part of DHS, um, to take a look at the performance of the technologies. And that's, you know, that's all part of it. You know, you mentioned earlier on about different algorithms. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of citation to the, to the NIST study that was, I think in 2019, um, and, uh, where, you know, they, rec they, the study concluded that, you know, there are algorithms that uh, do not perform very well and do, uh, have, uh, uh, you know, have, are, have greater errors depending on gender, um, or, uh, race. Um, but, you know, the top performing algorithms, uh, they really found, you know, that they, that they did not have that level of errors. And so. My understanding, at least I've been told that uh, the algorithms that we use are, you know, at, at TSA are the ones that are, you know, some of the top performing algorithms. And so we have, we have less, you know, we, have, we, we, we are not finding that that is a problem um, that, that, you know, that we have been able to validate, uh, you know, with the, with the facial recognition that technology that we're using. But yeah, in terms of you know, so, so you're you know you you probably all remember you know the, there was a there was a fingerprint case that involved uh, the Madrid train bombing way back, um, 
this guy out in Oregon, I think it was. And I, I Brandon Mayfield, uh, the U S army. Reserve, right. US, right. So US you had, yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that was a classic case of, of the FBI not listening to another law enforcement organization, in this case, the Spanish police telling them, uh, no, that that's not a match. Uh, that was, that was quite the horror story. And when the DOJ IG subsequently did an examination of that whole episode, they absolutely concluded that there was bias, uh, anti-Muslim bias, essentially, uh, you know, that kind of drove that, uh, that particular outcome. Um, I, I want to just very quickly, if we can, and to the extent that Claire and Nate uh, and, and Peter are comfortable, I want to talk about this, you know, also in like a Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment context, because one of the one of the concerns that I have and uh, my colleague uh, James Craven on our criminal justice team, he certainly has a concern about it, uh, is essentially the difference between the kinds of protections that you get um, with respect to the Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment. Uh, and how they differ with respect to, you know, passwords, you know, you, you can't compel someone to speak their password. Uh, uh, but with respect to biometrics, we've had court decisions, uh, I think in the third circuit, uh, where they basically said, no, that's, you know, that that's no big deal in essence. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's not really a fourth amendment or, or fifth amendment related issue, particularly a fifth amendment related issue, um, from a testimonial standpoint. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, do you all have concerns about potentially a rising disparity in terms of the level of protection that you get from a password for your electronic devices versus, you know, possibly a lesser standard with regards to, you know, biometrics? Certainly. Um, I think it's, it's frankly quite strange to assume that citizens don't anticipate at very least the same level of protection with a biometric passcode as opposed to an enhanced or maybe an, even an enhanced level of protection. Um, if I were to install a safe in my house and I were to use a biometric lock, I think the assumption of most people would be that I am actually seeking enhanced protection over a passcode than um, uh, by, by using that, that biometric indicator. We've seen a split in courts and I think it sort of boils down to looking at form or looking at function. So the form of, the, of a biometric lock looks a lot like taking a fingerprint, which courts have historically said uh, law enforcement is allowed the compelled production of a physical characteristic. They can compel somebody to take their fingerprint. So to the extent that putting your finger on a phone looks very similar to that, okay, great, falls into that bucket of case law. However, that's looking at form and not function. The function of a biometric lock is identical to using a passcode. It is, it is a form of encryption. So I do think it's more appropriate, and in some cases, some courts have acknowledged this, to look at what is the purpose of the use of biometrics in this space? And that is the, uh, to, to encryption is asserting ownership over a device and the, the, um, the act of compelling somebody to look at their phone or to put their, their fingerprint on there is an authentication of the device's content more so than asserting or proving identification vis-a-vis -vis facial recognition or a fingerprint. Nate, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think it's yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, the you know the the basis for the the kind of formalistic uh, application of the Fifth Amendment protection is it, it's the based in the right against self-incrimination, uh, and the you know the idea in traditional cases outside of these kind of you know device unlocking is that uh, the government and police can't compel you to testify against yourself. Uh, which courts have, have in this context, uh, the courts that are, are taking a very formalistic view have said, well, if police are compelling you to um, express the contents of your mind by either saying your password or even sometimes inputting your password into a phone, then, then that's testimonial in the, the kind of language of the Fifth Amendment because it's stuff that was locked up in your mind. It was your private thoughts. Now they're making you give it over to them. But, um, but your features from which a biometric can be extracted, 
are are not the contents of your mind uh, that's on the outside of you, and so that can be compelled. And and I I completely agree with Claire that that's um, in this context a just nonsensical distinction that doesn't get at the actual kind of values that the the Fifth Amendment and the Constitution are trying to to protect. Uh, and here uh, again, the you know the the old cases about um, allowing police to compel someone to produce say a fingerprint. Uh, are all about just confirming identity, right? There are cases about voice exemplars too, so that you know police can compel you to say some words, and then a witness to a crime can listen to them and say, "Oh yeah, that sounds like the the same voice." But but here, this is not you know in this context of compelling someone to unlock their device, it's not about confirming their identity. It, it's about, as Claire said, unlocking a biometric lock and getting into the contents of that device, which are their private materials. And I think that raises very different questions. And given the state of the current case law, do you think it would be prudent for Congress to step in, uh, you know, to, to, to clarify that, you know, a password is a password is a password, whether, you know, it's uh, uh, inputted manually or whether it is uh, in the form of uh, an, an encryption, uh, a level of encryption and protection via software? Do you, you think Congress needs to weigh in there? I, I think... That would make a lot of sense. I mean, courts are really struggling with this this question. Uh, you know, the the Supreme Court has made clear that under the Fourth Amendment, uh, police need a warrant to get into your phone to do the search of the phone. Uh, there was a, a case uh, about a, a decade ago, a little less than that, um, uh, called Riley versus California, which is about searching somebody after a lawful arrest. It's called a search incident to arrest. Uh, and the the kind of old rule is that uh, when police uh, arrest you lawfully, they can search your pockets and search anything found in those pockets to look for contraband, to look for dangerous items, make sure you're not destroying evidence on the way to the station house. Uh, and what the Supreme Court said is, uh, sure, that's that's a fine rule for physical objects, but when it comes to electronic devices, the contents of them is so much more private, uh, so different from, say, the contents of a billfold or a cigarette pack that we need a new rule, and that rule is get a warrant even after a lawful arrest. So we know a warrant's required to do the search, but that still leaves open the question uh, that maybe Congress or other uh, legislative bodies should should resolve about you know what police have to do to actually get into that device if you aren't willing to give them your passport password or your biometric unlock. Uh, and um, and there, this distinction between a password and your biometric, uh, I think, really isn't a tenable one. I think another Peter, very concrete reason. Go why it might make sense for for congress to step in here sure we could wait for the supreme court to sort of figure out the circuit split that we've got going on here but it might be very the decision would likely be very um technology specific whereas this might be an issue that just keeps arising again and again based on various new forms of locks might be totally impractical but we might have one that you know talks to our unique heartbeat and all of a sudden opens up just by proximity to us and then all of a sudden this question is reopened, that could be in theory answered by uh, a law. And Peter, I wanted to go back just real quickly. Um, we're running out of time. When you were talking about um, the algorithms that you all are using um, and, and essentially experimenting with, what kind of external oversight, um, and by external, I mean outside of the department, what kind of external oversight is taking place you know, looking at, you know, what you all are doing, you know, is, is the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House looking at this? Um, is there anybody at the National Academies kind of looking over your shoulder? Any, anybody else kind of looking at that? I raise that because in the field of public key encryption, um, those folks that are really serious about making sure that everybody knows that their encryption actually works to the extent that it can, uh, almost invariably publish that stuff. You know, uh, the, the manufacturers of, of the Signal uh, app, uh, you know, publish their code for public inspection. Um, may not be able to do full public inspection for what you're, you're doing. Maybe you could, may, maybe TSA could. But I'm looking at, at the question of whether or not there's oversight, essentially, external oversight outside of TSA kind of looking at this. I'm, I'm not. I'm not aware of any. Uh, doesn't doesn't mean it's not happening. That it's just that I'm, I'm just not aware of it. But I'm, I, you know, as far as I know, uh, you know, White House uh, OSC has not been involved. Um, National Academy has not been involved. 
um, you know, we work, we work within DHS, we work uh, with S&T. Um, I think we're doing some work with NIST as well, um, but that's it. And that's not really, okay. you know, NIST, NIST, NIST role is not an oversight role, so. Right, right, they're te literally technical advisors uh, right. in that respect. Um, we have reached 2 p.m., the end of our time together today. I apologize to our audience. We did have a number of questions we were not able to get to. Uh, please know that we do value those always. Uh, and if there is an opportunity for us to address those, uh, you know, through some of my work uh, via the blog or elsewhere, I will certainly look for those opportunities. I want to thank our guests today, Claire Garvey, Nate Wessler, and Peter Petra. Uh, Peter, you've been a real sport. Uh, you're one of the few people in government that will that will actually come to Cato events. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. And I hope everyone here uh, has a great rest of the week. Thanks for joining us for Cato Surveillance Week 2023. For the Cato Institute, I'm Patrick Eddington. Take care.